Thank you for joining us today. My name is Brad Miller, and this is the Chronically Human Podcast, where we have discussions aimed at creating a better world with more individual freedom and less unnecessary suffering. Today, my guest is Dr. Marilyn Singleton. She is a board-certified anesthesiologist, a frequent contributor to conservativepundit.net on the issue of medical freedom, and the president of the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. We have a great discussion about why Medicare for All is a terrible idea, how government intervention into the healthcare market always increases costs and decreases choice, and how large corporate third-party payers create unnecessary conflicts between doctors and patients. Dr. Singleton explains how the direct primary care model of medicine is a great alternative to the current system and can help decrease costs and repair the doctor-patient relationship. I myself exercise my health freedom by choosing to take Kratom, and the only brand of Kratom I trust is Urban Ice Organics, and you can find Urban Ice Organics Kratom at naturalorganics.com. That's naturalorganics with an X. Dot com. Use promo code chronicallyhuman20 at checkout to get 20% off. Thank you for listening today, and please let us know what you think about medical freedom in America. Thank you, Dr. Singleton, for being on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Excellent. Well, I've been following your work um, with the AAPS and also on the conservative uh, pundit.net. Uh, your blog posts are very informative. And medical freedom is something that's very close to my heart. Uh, I've Just a little background, uh, I've been sick for 30 years, chronically ill. I've been in pain for that long as well. When I was 11, I had uh, ulcerative colitis, really bad case. So I had my colon removed, and I had 20 surgeries since then, 50 hospital stays, and over you know hundreds of doctor visits. And so I've seen healthcare from the consumer side. And so I'm always glad to talk with doctors who... Uh, obviously are seeing it from the doctor's side, but are also concerned about medical freedom and bringing back the relationship between doctor and patient and not having that government or those rent seekers in the middle of that relationship. Well, I'll tell you, this is something AAPS has been working on since 1943. And the organization, indeed, it was started when the first bill for single-payer health care came out, and that was one of those hold-the-phone moments, because when, when you start to examine these sorts of things, it's pretty clear that individual freedom going out the door. Exactly, and that's, and that's what I really like about what you guys are doing there at the Association for America, of American uh, physicians and surgeons is that you put the patient first. I believe that's your motto actually is, is, uh, you know, putting the patient first. And a lot of people, when they talk about advocating for Medicare for all, I think they don't realize is that when you have Medicare, Medicare for all is that you have government making every decision about your healthcare, about your healthcare. <laughs> Absolutely. And it's very funny because people like to complain that the insurance companies have pre-authorizations. Well, the government is the ultimate pre-authorization. And if you have the government as the only authority who's deciding what the famous word is 
medically necessary, then they can change their definition of medically necessary at will. And then the patient has no choice because everything's been honed down. And in these new bills, they even basically want to abolish private insurance. The only private insurance that could be out there would be for things like plastic surgery. And who gets insurance for plastic surgery anyway? So the private insurance market would be decimated once people decide, yeah, this isn't a very good idea, that they've decided that my redo of my colostomy is uh, not medically necessary. Oh, it's just fine the way it is, even though we have some new mechanisms or whatever. And this is the scary part to me, that it's total control in one entity and a very big entity at that. Exactly. And they're already exerting their control and distorting the healthcare market as it is with only being um, the size that they are, which is huge, but it's nothing in comparison to what they would do if they had control over everything. Uh, I was listening to the uh, the head of the uh, Health and Human Services, and he was talking about how Medicare doesn't even negotiate for drug prices. In fact, that they the U.S. federal government was paying 100% more for drugs than any other country just simply because they didn't negotiate. And so you have these... Yeah, well, it's like, oh, way back when, 20 years ago, it made all the news talking about the $500 toilets the Army got, that there really is something about when you're such a big entity that who knows what kind of controls or buddies that are the people who get the contracts, all of that stuff. And it's so opaque how they do things that we have no way of tracking it. Whereas the smaller entities, and the you know the smaller the entity, the more transparent. And if they are doing something that's unseemly, it's discovered pretty quickly. And one of the reasons that we like the idea of direct doctor, patient, direct pay, and only using insurance for catastrophic is if I sent you a bill for a colonoscopy and you didn't have one, you'd sure know it. And you'd be on me like that. Now, with this system so huge, bills are just flying all over the place. And one of the famous things, one of the Medicare folks had said, my mother had gotten a bill for something. Well, there are these statements. And I said, well, she never had that. And they says, Oh, that's all right. She's not paying for it anyway. Wow. With that sort of attitude, then you wonder why the government loses money and why you don't want them to be the ones managing your money. I look at it that if you have one of these Medicare for All programs, and there's about eight different ones that people are throwing out there, is that what would you rather have? Double your payroll tax and have the money go in a black hole, or you keep the money, and you know exactly where it's going. I think that is a great point. keeping my own. Exactly. Yes, I would definitely want control over where my, where my dollars are going, because a lot of people, you know, they'll talk about democracy, but at the same time, every time you spend a dollar, you're voting with your dollar. That's right. You're absolutely right. And I think a lot of times people don't see that. And one of the things that 
is sad is there's us talking and then there's the bully pulpit that everybody sees. There's the news show that everybody sees and they can present a rosy picture. And those of us in the trenches, you as a chronic patient and me as a physician, we see what's really happening. And so the rosy pictures aren't really what's out there. And I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing because people need to know. And I think that's the, the biggest problem of people who are for individual freedoms is educating the public about the pros and cons, and and they can make the choice. How much individual freedom are you willing to give up for some modicum of security? And they can ask themselves, is it worth it? Exactly, and that's the point with Medicare for All is that you've lost that that choice, that you don't have that choice of, of choice any longer. And one of your blog posts that I really thought that you had a great point was that you talked about at first it sounds like things are voluntary that they'll what they'll do the central planners is that they'll um, they'll trick the masses into accepting something free and that free is really um, the free that was created by the free market that product or service and then it's given away but as time goes on that service is going to dwindle down and instead of being voluntary everything is through force Well, that's right. And it's very interesting because there's a long history of that. Way back when Social Security first started, when you read the history of that, this was supposed to be voluntary contributions from folks' paychecks. Well, guess what? It was mandatory and continues to be mandatory. So if anybody believes that something's voluntary. They're crazy. And if it's voluntary for the first month, that's probably the only time it would be voluntary. And then it becomes coercive by definition, like you point out, when there's no other options, then you really are coerced into these programs. And it's so wrong. And that's not what our country was founded on. And and you had another blog post that you talked about how that medical services shouldn't be something different than anything else that we purchase. And I think going back to your point about individual rights, that I feel like as a patient, the Bill of Rights is thrown out the window, that you you don't have any privacy anymore, especially if you're a pain patient. You don't have any privacy anymore. You're, you're treated like a convicted criminal by going into the pain management system. You have to pee in a cup. You have to basically go see your parole officer, which they call a pain doctor now. And the idea that when government takes control over situations, they do so by force and that the criminal justice element is always behind it, that everything that government does is at the barrel of a gun. Uh, Well, it's very sad. And I think chronic pain patients are one of the worst victims of top-down control. And believe me, doctors, are being hit with it and you're sort of you know how they say such and such rolls downhill my boots are full of it yes (laughs) and because doctors are treated like criminals doctors are being arrested for so-called over prescribing and that doesn't mean that there aren't some bad doctors out there but a lot of 
doctors are being swept up in the net. And this is something that happens when you get these draconian rules. You end up having some doctors leave the field. And, and it's also the same with just chronic illness patients. For example, when they started having these value-based programs where doctors were paid based on outcomes, well, who's going to want a sick patient? Who's going to want a very non-compliant patient, as they're called? And we've all had patients where you tell them to stop smoking, they don't. Tell them to stop drinking, they don't. You can't live in their home and change their life. So a patient doesn't follow your orders, so you don't get paid for taking care of them. Well, guess what? You're not going to have that patient in your practice anymore, or certainly not very many of them. You can only afford to have a handful of those. And so you get all those patients kind of concentrated in a couple of practices. And the same thing happens with pain patients, that if a doctor has his buddy, somebody in the office, and has been there and seen him get attacked with a DEA coming in, swarming the office, asking for all the patient records and whatnot. Do you really think that's going to encourage doctors to want to be in the pain management system? No. And the academicians have a better chance of avoiding all the various problems, but, but small private practitioners, and certainly in smaller towns where there isn't a big medical center, mm -hmm. they're the ones that seem to get attacked, but they're the ones writing more prescriptions because they are the only doctor in the small town. They are the only doctor for a hundred miles around. So it, it doesn't mean they're a criminal, yet, as you point out, they're treated like criminals along with their patients. And that's a, that's a great point is that doctors and patients, I think, are in the same boat, that a lot of times the media and even people who are in the public policy sphere try to pit different groups against each other, especially the doctor-patient relationship seems to be getting more and more antagonistic. And I think it has to do more with the regulatory environment and especially the third-party payer issue. Is that one of your focuses with AAPS is freeing doctors from that third party payer uh, moral hazard, if you will, that uh, that is strangling healthcare right now? Well, that's absolutely right. And this whole third party thing, once it began, you could start to see the change in the relationship and that idea of when I told you, oh, well, you're not paying for it and right. it encourages people not to take care of their own health. We as physicians give medical care. You as a patient take care of your health right. and it's got to be a cooperative venture mm -hmm. and many times it does well and I even heard a nurse once say they were sitting there eating this big burger and his buddy said well don't you have high cholesterol don't you and he says, yeah, but I take the statins, so it'll be all right. And it's like, no, you shouldn't be, you know, wolfing down five hamburgers a day. And, you know, so it, it's interesting what it, what it does to our mindset. But it also, I, how could I put it? The old days, my father was a general practitioner okay. in a poor area where we lived. And... 
he charged patients what they could afford. And so he had multiple different fees, you know, oh, I don't have any money this month. Okay. You know, this is what you pay. Pay me with some tamales, whatever. And we did get paid <laughs> many times in tamales. How do you pay taxes on tamales? <laughs> oh, that's the best part. Right. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> one of my colleagues actually had to write a letter up once uh, they had these stark laws and anti-kickback laws and all these things where when you were taking federal dollars, you always have to charge patients the same thing or it's considered health fraud. You know, this is if you're in a government program. And one of my colleagues actually had a little letter written up citing the law when patients would ask, oh, can I have a discount? And he'd say no, and they'd think he was an awful person. And he says, you're on Medicare. I can't do that. You know, and, and what does that do to the relationship? It, and the patient walks away thinking you're a mean person. Now there's some rigmarole you can go through after the fact to do that. But if somebody walks in and says, I want a discount, you can't say that. So imagine if you're third party free and you walk in, you tell me your story that you've had 30 surgeries and you've been sick since you were 11 years old. I'd say, okay, I'll do you for free. <laughs> and there's plenty of people that do that. Right. One of my friends in Texas, before they passed this new rule for the vets where the people could leave the VA and get involved in a private system, it was just her decision as a way to give back to the country that she saw vets for free. And that was that. You know, I mean, these are things that make us human right. and not automatons. And, and this is what is scary to me. We aren't robots and we aren't drones. We're people. Exactly. And that's what healthcare, out of all the different types of businesses that you could get into, you know, I've spoken to several doctors on the show here, and the reason why they get into it is because they wanted to help people. What brought you to medicine specifically? It, it truly is the same sort of thing. I, I like the science of it, but you realize that you're a social worker. At heart, you're a social worker. And one of the biggest things that I learned, and it was something one of my teachers said, uh, Dr. Carboni, when we were learning how to take medical histories and everybody's, and especially these days, is all into test, test, test. And Dr. Carboni said, 90% or more of what you learn about the patients going to be from talking to them. Wow. And wow. it's so true. And I can't tell you the things that I've picked up with patients, just picking up on their personality and making, you know, which appears to be idle chit chat. I'll tell you a funny story that happened way back when there was a big scare with Love Canal because there were chemicals called dioxin that had been released into this canal and there were higher rates of cancer in the area and whatnot. And it made all the news. And there's a heart drug called digoxin. And I was interviewing a patient and I asked her her meds and all that. And she said, well, I used to take that dioxin, but I stopped after Love Canal. <laughs> I thought, 
oh no <laughs> does your internist know that i said that's something different that's not your heart drug but if i hadn't had the extra couple of minutes to chat with her i would have never learned that and then she keels over from heart failure and her internist is wondering oh my goodness why i had her on a drug she was doing well and these are things you learn from patients, and you learn so many things. Certain things change in their lives, and then it turns out their dog died, and that was their only social um, interaction was having that dog and walking the dog around the block, you know, all these things, and that affects your health. Definitely. I think that we, the more that the, the medical coding has broken things down to such minutia to that, that a lot of times that we're looked at as medical codes instead of as patients. And I know that has to do with a lot of times the doctors have such little time to see each patient. And do you think that that's going to get better or worse as doctors start opting out of the third party system and going more to direct care, direct primary care model? The direct primary care model is so fantastic and it's expanding to specialists and certainly you don't have to be a primary care physician and the specialties who are starting to go into this model are endocrinologists because they pretty much become primary care physicians for diabetics, oh, right. some gastroenterologists like who have people with a chronic problem, mm -hmm. that's who you go to. So you end up going to them for everything, right. some neurologists. And the biggest thing that these doctors, as well as their patients say, is time, that they have the time. And when people say, oh, well, that's only for rich people. Well, it's not only for rich people, and in fact, people who are on Medicare and already having their premiums sucked out of their Social Security check will actually pay the extra money. You're talking primary care, direct primary care practices cost anywhere from 40 to maybe $125 a month, and depending on what area you live in it might be higher you know if you're in a high rent city like new york or state like california the price is going to be a little more but for that you get everything and the thing that's amazing is like drugs the cost if you go through insurance 200 some odd dollars if you get it directly from the doctor in the primary care office 14 dollars I mean, it's, it's hard to imagine. And all what the guys do is get medicine in bulk and charge a couple percent over the price of the medicine to pay for the bottle that they have to put in, the bottle and the label. And that's it. So it's basically at cost. Lab tests. They make deals with these lab test companies where if you see it on the insurance bill, the lab tests are going to come up to $40. You can get all the average blood tests for a dollar each in the big panel that does all the chemistries, that about a dollar sixty-five. X-rays, thirty-five, forty dollars. Will you add this up that you have saved so much money? And one of the things that's so bothersome to me that happened with the ACA was putting restrictions 
on catastrophic insurance policies. That catastrophic insurance policies, that's what I had my whole life. Mm -hmm. And yes, it has a high deductible, but for all the money you save from paying ridiculously high premiums for healthcare insurance that you never were going to use, it's, it's astounding. People just can't believe the difference. And then they put restrictions where you have to be under 29 mm -hmm. to get it. Well, there's perfectly healthy 60 year olds. Why can't they get it? I mean, you're only under 29 or healthy. That's ridiculous. And you, otherwise you have to fit into an exception. Everybody should be able to get catastrophic insurance and then pay for the rest themselves and you'll still come out ahead. And people have drawn up the numbers and compared these, these full-priced ACA packages that have things. I doubt that you're going to get pregnant. I know I could be making an assumption, but I doubt it. Why should you have maternity care on there? Right. And, um, and then a woman past childbearing age. Why should I have to buy a policy that has maternity care? There's enough other people who are going to buy the policies. Do you know that before they started all this government involvement, there were 840-some health insurance policies out there? I mean... There were tons of products to choose from, and now we barely have any. And insurance is just like any other business, Target or Walmart or anything. If you've got a lot of products out there, people are going to come, and you're going to manage those products to fit what people want. And now these government-mandated products, they're ridiculous, absolutely ridiculous. And what did it do? It drove up the price for everybody. And it's and and people got sucked in in the beginning and now they're seeing the problem, but it's too late. And this is the problem with, again, government programs that's like the Roach Motel. You go in, but you can't get back out. Yep, definitely. Especially with the, the, the ACA, what they did was they actually the insurance companies loved it. The big ones, because uh what people blame on capitalism is a lot of times crony capitalism or state capitalism, where you have these large corporations who are using the force of government to force money out of your pocket and to make choices for you that benefit themselves. And there was, there was a lot of that going on at first. It looked like that everything was going to be working okay because the insurance companies were receiving billions of dollars in subsidies to cover a lot of these premiums, and once those subsidies went away, then you saw the, the premium skyrocket. That's right. And, and again, the free lunch doesn't last forever. The same thing has happened with the Medicaid expansion. To get states to expand their Medicaid program, the federal government was putting in more money. Okay, we'll help you pay the bills. But that wasn't forever either. It had an end to it. So there you go. Now the states are scrambling around. Where are we going to get this money? And well, they should have thought about that before. It was a, it was a time limited thing. But you know, and this is the other problem. Businesses tend to think ahead. They they tend to look for unintended consequences. The government doesn't seem to do that. They pass one law, and then it's like, oh. There's a problem here. 
So then they have to pass another regulation to make up for the problem they created. And who's on the hook? We the taxpayers. And who profit and who pays? That's that's really, uh, I had Dr. Uh, Mary Ruert on and she was talking about Mary, medical freedom. Are you are you familiar with yes, her work? Yes, yes. Excellent. Uh-huh. Very nice, very knowledgeable, compassionate lady. And she was talking about how she thinks that government regulations are actually human experimentation that doesn't pass the ethical standards that, that people have in place since the Nuremberg trials for human experimentation because they're not checking up on to see the efficacy of these regulations, like you just said, that there's no follow-up and there's no consent as well. Absolutely. Boy, talk about no consent. And the worst thing that happens with these regulations, instead of going back and rescinding the regulation, they make another one to kind of make up for the problem that was created with the last one. They need to go back and wipe some of these things out and start with a clean slate. I mean, because yes, in some industries and whatnot, of course you need some regulations. You can't wait for thousands of people to die from meat contamination before you say meat should be inspected because normally market forces do weed out bad products, but there's some bad products that would be life-threatening. But we all know, and, and even with doctors or other services you have that if there was and most patients know if a doctor's no good Mm -hmm. (laughs) I mean you might not agree with the doctor and their treatment plan but you can still feel that it's coming from some sense of intelligence or he examined the problem and that's what he came up with And you might have thought, "Mm, you know, maybe I don't want to do this. But then if you go in somebody's office and everything's kind of slipshod and they, you know, they don't even ask you something simple like how old you are, you're kind of thinking, "Mm, I don't know if I'm going to go here. And everybody's going to think that except a few kind of sad people who, for whatever reason, don't pick up on those things. Right. And so even bad doctors will be weeded out. Bad veterinarians are weeded out. People in my neighborhood said, oh, yeah, there's a, a vet shop that looks really good, and it's just a few blocks down, but the dogs don't come out very well. So all these things can happen in medicine, too. And we can certainly modify some of the tremendous regulations that they've piled on. The last group, about three years ago, were all these metrics that doctors had to fill out. And I'm an anesthesiologist, and one that I thought was really funny, one of the metrics was, did your patient stop smoking before surgery? Well, not really my patient. I have them on the table for surgery, and... I met them the day before because it's outpatient surgery. So what control do I have over their smoking? Yet that's one of the metrics that you're held to. <laughs> I mean, it's who wrote this stuff? Obviously somebody not practicing medicine. And I think that is one of the main issues that's going on right now. I believe it was Harvard that they're graduating more public policy 
graduates than they are doctors now. And so you have all of these people who are trying to direct the trillions and trillions of dollars being funneled into Washington, D.C., where people are getting more and more disconnected to what's what what is really the service going on? It's trying to help people feel better in in the end. That's right. And, you know, you talk about the disconnect, and this is why we get so discouraged that talking to people in Washington, D.C. is becoming more and more useless, that you see that they have their agenda, and the agenda really isn't to help the folks out. And it's sad that that's what it's become. I wasn't around in the late 1700s and 1800s, so I don't know if it's always been that way. You read history and and realize way back when these folks literally were farmers and regular people who went to Congress and they didn't stay there forever because they had their farm to go back to or their job to go back to. Now it's a career and they don't have other jobs. I mean, some do, but generally speaking, that's their job. And Washington is their life. And what happened? What happened to the citizen legislator? They seem to be out the window, along with things that are passed that benefit us. Yep, definitely. I think term limits would be a great place to start instead of these dynasties that are built where even the family members will, once they you know retire, they'll pass it on to somebody else in their family. And that's really what uh, the, the country was founded upon was the idea that we shouldn't have a nobility that ruled over other people. And I think we're, we're uh, solidifying that now, un- unfortunately. Well, you talked about you know the problem in Washington, D.C., and I was reading on your website, aaps.org. Uh, aapsonline.org. Oh, I'm sorry. Aapsonline.org. Thank you. And I'll have that link, too, on chronicallyhuman.co. I'll have the link to okay. your to your website. I apologize. And what you had a great booklet on there called Common Sense Medicine. And it talked about the ideas of individual liberty and specifically the author, he talked about leaving the American Medical Association, about not wanting to to go that route, that we're seeing these large organizations working close with government that really doesn't have at heart our individual rights or our decision or, or wanting to put our decisions back in our hands. Is that why you really went uh, and joined AAPS and became the president? Was that kind of your thoughts on that instead of these other organizations that are out there for doctors? Well, the AMA, way back when, I had joined it for about a year. And because you had to belong to the AMA in order to belong to the local medical association. So that sort of forced the issue. And then as I started getting more and more materials and actually went to a national meeting, I thought, this does not mesh with how I think. And on one hand, you say, well, you have power in numbers. And then it turns out only 17% of doctors are even in the AMA. So again, it ends up being the power brokers for whatever their reasons um, are running the show. And an example of what happened, I'm in California, what happened in our gubernatorial race is our state medical association 
had endorsed, who ultimately won as governor. And they claim they didn't believe in some of the policies, some of the big policies he wanted to do. But they said, well, he's going to win, so we want him on our side. Now, how disingenuous is that? But that is what's happening, where it might not really be with the belief of you or your individual members of the association, but you'll go ahead and endorse somebody hoping they'll do some favor for you, even though they it, it's not your beliefs. And that's the one thing about AAPS. Some people might criticize, but we stick to the beliefs and don't change with the weather. And, and I think that's a great point that there's alternatives out there because when people hear of the AMA, they think that is the sole voice for doctors out there. And like you said, there's only 17% of doctors who are, who are members to that. And I was reading on, on their website, but they were talking about how physician burnout is getting better, actually. And their take was that it, uh, it's because of the whatever programs that are in place, and they're actually advocating for more government spending to help with physician burnout. And in 2014, it actually has gone down since then. My take on that is that a lot of doctors have left medicine who were burnt out, and those numbers aren't really accurate towards the, the position that most physicians are in now. I think you're absolutely right. And one of the things, and we can certainly read it in all sorts of health policy literature, that consistently when surveys are taken, one of the number one problems in medicine now are the electronic medical records. That's the number one thing that physicians complain about. Now, can you imagine when somebody, when you say these records are ridiculous and it's reams and reams of electronic paperwork that sometimes you can't even get to the question of how are you doing now? until you've gone through all these other questions that take a lot of time. And then people say, oh, well, you can hire someone to be a scribe. Well, why should you have to hire? I mean, can you imagine even if it's a minimum wage job, you're trying to run a practice, and then do you really think the patient wants another creature in the room with them? I mean, that's just what got to me. Here, patients are worried about privacy, and they are going to tell you their intimate details of their lives, which you hope they want to tell you. Mm -hmm. And then there's a person sitting there with a notepad or typing. It's Talk about getting in the middle of the doctor-patient relationship. My goodness. And, you know, so that's somebody's answer. Well, again, when people are out of the system, they don't have to use electronic records. They don't have to use the ones that are compatible with the government. And um, one of the direct primary care doctors came up with a nice, simple system where, you know, it's not sitting there typing and typing and typing the whole time or staying after your workday for two and a half, three more hours trying to complete the medical records. Who can live that kind of life? Who can never go home to their family? Nobody. And that gets to you after a while. So a lot of these statistics that have changed are because, like you said, the doctors either got out of medicine completely or some of them have moved into direct pay practices, direct primary care practices. 
And whenever those studies are done or people are quoting statistics like that, it feels like they're not showing the big picture. They're not talking about, you know, the, the physician suicides. They're not talking about uh, the regulatory burden that physicians are under and the time crunch as well, because from my point of view, I know I've been very frustrated with doctors, and that's one of the reasons why I'm doing this uh, podcast is to talk and to get a, a more of a to paint a more realistic picture of how the healthcare world works and how to create more freedom within that world because I think that applies to everybody, no matter if you're on the left, right, middle, libertarian, socialist. I think medical freedom is something that we can all we can all definitely. Uh, get behind. But as far as the time crunch goes on doctors, when doctors are only seeing patients five minutes at a time, that has to put an enormous stress on them as well. Are you seeing that as one of the reasons for physician burnout, as well as the medical records, that it's the time crunch and the regulatory deal? Yeah, well, absolutely. And that swings back to something you said earlier on about why did someone become a doctor? Because you wanted to help people. So to see a patient for five minutes is antithetical to why you went into medicine in the first place. Sure, there are some five-minute quickie follow-up visits. You know, I got your mammogram back and it's fine, but I want you to do X. That's why you had to come in the office and they just couldn't send you a letter. You know, at certain things. Okay, you had one stitch from a little cut here. Yeah, clip. Okay, adios. You know, but when, and first visits used to be about one and a half hours. That would be the initial first visit where you wanted to do a full review of everything that's ever happened to the patient. Okay. Now first visits are down to half hour, 40 minutes. And if that's the first time you've seen the patient, it's not enough mm -hmm. to learn everything about them. And, and a lot of that has to do with the coding. Mm -hmm. You know, the, they have visits, five minute visit, five to 10 minute and the different payment structure. And you can't, how many patients could you see if you saw them for the full hour and a half, mm -hmm. but the government's only going to pay you for 40 minutes. So you either have to decide, okay, you know, I'm not going to make any money, but you have to make money to keep the office going. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is another thing in a direct pay practice, why the prices are so cheap. If you don't have to do coding, and, you know, for the folks, each, like you said, you know, each condition has a code. And now it's up to like 98,000 codes because they do right and they do left. And they're silly codes. Somebody even did a, a story on the silly codes like they have. There's a code for a parrot bite versus a cockatoo bite. And, you know, there's, wow. yeah, there's tons of silly codes. And, um, but you've got to have a coder in order to send these diagnoses into the insurance companies. Well, if you're doing direct pay, you don't need a coder. You write the patient a bill. You came in, saw me, did this, and you give them a summary of what the visit was. But one person does that. Well, coders make good money. So that's one whole salary you don't have to pay. So if you take the coder's salary that you're not paying and spread it around, 
The other salary you don't need is somebody who spends all day on the phone with the insurance company. Mm -hmm. So you're talking two salaries that you don't need to have. One of my direct pay dermatology friends does surgery two days a week, you know, does all the lumps and bumps and cutting off the moles and whatnot. She does it two days a week. So for those two days, she gets a nurse from one of these, the companies, you know, they give you a nurse for a day. She always gets the same one. But, you know, this woman is not sitting around the office five days a week waiting for the doctor to do a surgery Mm. and she's direct pay so it makes it very simple so there's a lot of advantages to not going through the third party that in a business sense um until you do it a lot of people think oh how can i afford to do that but then you realize all the other salaries that you don't have to pay that's 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 something that I think most people don't realize, especially on the patient side, is that with the insurance companies, the way they pay, that's a, an extremely complicated situation that there's so many different insurance companies and that you have to be on the phone and try to try to get that all squared away. And then payments might be three to six months later, right? The, at least. At least, right? At least. And then you have, to, yeah, and the patient doesn't know what their responsibility is either. And so the idea of, of price transparency, I think that's really important with the model that you're talking about. Yes, yes. Knowing what something costs and who would do that in any other situation? Just say, well, here it is and here's your stake. Now I'm going to tell you how much it is and, and whether or not you have to pay for it. Who would do that? And that that's a great point. It's the idea that, what, what I advocate for with uh, the Chronically Human podcast is that individuals have inherent rights, and those inherent rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I like life, liberty, and property because I think without property, private property, you can't have liberty. And one of the things that really disturbs me about the, the Medicare for All push is that it's the total destruction of private property, not only for the doctor, and it's also for the patient as well, because if you can't spend your dollars, which is your property, then 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 who does really own that property? It's not you. Well, interesting. I'll, Brad, I'll take that one step farther that it doesn't just take your property. It takes your life. Yeah. It's putting your life in the hands of someone who clearly doesn't care about you as an individual. And one of my things, just because I saw it happen in my own family and worked a lot in the ICU where I worked with a lot of people who were dying, people who were sick but were going to get well and saw the whole spectrum, Mm -hmm. is this push these days for popping people into hospice Mm -hmm. before they barely had their foot in the door. And in my own situation, my mother hadn't even been on antibiotics one day before they came in and said, oh, would you like her to be on hospice? And you're like, why? (laughs) And, And it's very interesting because even though she was old, in three days, she was better. Her pneumonia was clearing, and that's that. It's like, at least let people get a week of antibiotics before you give them up for dead. And more and more, 
you see people being pushed into hospice too early, and there's studies that are showing that there's all these people who quote unquote graduate from hospice or discharge from hospice. Well, if they're discharged, that meant that they went in there when they didn't need to be, and um, and admittedly, there's a really good place for hospice. I there's no question that I'm not saying to get rid of it. I'm just saying just because somebody's old and they happen to get sick for a couple of days doesn't mean that hospice is the next path. And I look at this as single payer. What if they decide medically necessary Mm. is hospice? And they could decide that because I don't get to decide what's medically necessary. The government does. And when they start to run out of money, well... Who goes? And we've seen that actually. We've seen that in different places that that it's they'll they'll make that kind of calculation. And there there's famous books about that out there about which which um, when are human beings human beings? There's some people who advocate for single payer that doesn't think a human being is a human being until age five, and that you shouldn't direct healthcare valuable scarce healthcare dollars to helping those people at the beginning or at the end stages of life. That's right. Well, Rahm Emanuel's complete life system, that adolescents are the most useful to society. And that's not how we judge people. And if you're looking at it in some sort of algorithm, perhaps that's true, but that's not what we are. You tell me that my baby isn't useful or my mom isn't useful, and there's other uses of people than just out there having a job or programming a computer mm-hmm. that they teach us compassion and humanity. And that's how I look at, I call these um, post-birth abortions that oh, they were wow. pushing. Mm-hmm. It's all part of, and as a, it, this has nothing to do with pro-choice. I mean, <laughs> this is killing people after they're alive and deciding that it's okay. But that's part of the whole picture. Get rid of the undesirables. Mm -hmm. And it's like with anything, it's just like with censorship. You can start off thinking, well, I'm doing the right thing. But the first target is rarely the last. Mm -hmm. And that's how I look at, okay, you know, first it's a newborn, then how far up do you go? And, how far down do you go? First, it's the 100-year-old person. And, and, and it's like when they define the rich who are going to pay for everything. Well, there's only 535 billionaires in the United States anyway. And um, the rich, as defined by Bernie Sanders, is $250,000 a year. Well, if somebody lives in San Francisco or New York, that's not that much money for them to live on. Maybe in other states that might be considered really rich, but not in California. And that's two senior teachers. And so that's rich. Well, guess what? After you flog those people to death, you're going to march that down. Then it's going to be 200. Then it's going to be 150. And suddenly it's going to be everybody. And Though one thing people always forget when they talk about tax the rich, tax the rich, is you're going to get taxed 
because if they raise payroll taxes, that taxes everybody, even the person with the least paying job. They all get payroll taxes taken out. And some of the suggestions to pay for Medicare for all are to double the payroll tax. And those are the people who can least afford it. Exactly. And we talked about how you talked about how social social security was sold as a voluntary program at first and then it locked every people in. And then it just progressively got uh, less and less benefits for people. And now you've have seniors who are actually using reverse mortgages to, to stay in their homes and actually stay alive. And I think that's really an, an indictment of the social security system. It doesn't work as it was sold. But nobody's going to go back on that to say maybe we need to to, to relook at that. But at the same point, the, the income tax, you talk about uh, taxing the rich, that was sold to the American people as well in 1913 as only going to affect the top 1%. That it would be insanity to think about all these doomsdayers, all these uh, people who are saying that everybody's going to be taxed. They were told that that was insanity talk. That was conspiracy theory back then. But we see how taxes have evolved since 1913. You're so right. And it's amazing. And you've obviously looked at your history. And to see how these things just crept in. And it, it's funny how incrementalism only seems to go in one direction. Right. And once you have some huge entitlement, how do you take it away? Mm -hmm. And no matter how unconstitutional or not right or it's not working. And I mean, when Social Security began, even the title of it, it was the poor, aged, blind, disabled. Well, then it became everybody. And trust me, there's plenty of people who make a good living that would be more than happy to have Social Security be a means tested affair, which is what it started off as. Mm -hmm. But then you start to resent it because they're taking this money from me every month in perpetuity in my entire life since I started working at age 17. And you start to get a little, well, maybe I do want a little of it back. And I'll tell you something with regard to healthcare that a lot of people don't know. They should know and they should yell it from the rooftops. If you decide you do not want Medicare Part A, that's the hospital part of Medicare that's automatically taken out of your Social Security, if you decide you don't want it, you have to forfeit your future Social Security and give back all the money that they gave you before you decided to drop out. Wow. It's a case you would enjoy enjoy reading Hall v. Sibelius. And this is the case where that was litigated because someone wanted to get out of paying Part A Medicare. So it shows how once you're in that system, you are trapped. And the idea of clawing back all the Social Security payments. It, it's, it's a punishment for somebody wanting to get out of the system. And, that's, and I think that's a, a large part of the way the system is built nowadays is that, like you said, the incrementalism is like a ratchet that keeps clicking up, that you never go back on that, and that you can't really, um, you can't really opt out. And a lot of people will tout um, democratic socialism 
as the kinder, gentler socialism, when in reality, you don't have a vote on any of this stuff. How many people voted for the, the income tax to start? How many people voted on the, uh, the, the payroll taxes about the automatic deductions, which were only supposed to be emergency measures during World War II that were supposed to stop immediately, but they never did? That's right. And there's so many things that are snuck. They, they kind of get snuck into laws. I mean, that's like in the medical realm, uh, in the Stimulus Act, they snuck in something called the High Tech Act, and that was what forced doctors to have to use medical or the electronic medical records when you're dealing with the government. Who would think that would be in the Stimulus Act? And it's amazing when you start to look over these bills and whatnot to find little jewels that were put in there that, you know, some are paying somebody back for voting on something, whatever. But we don't know about it. You see the big picture there and say, oh, we're going to pass a gun control law. And then you find out that there's some little thing about education or child care in there that has nothing to do with gun control. So this is how these things are done. And then they're there. They're on the books. And um, it's almost like you need to just have a huge fire and burn it all up and start from scratch but we know that's not going to happen well I, well i do think that the primary care model is a great model as a as a um not as a separate medical system but as an option for people who don't want to be trapped inside of the current medical establishment what else do you see out there as far as the different ways that people are gaining back their freedom to exercise their inherent rights to choose for themselves how they take care of their health and well-being. What what else are you seeing, what physicians are doing or patients are doing on their end? Well, one thing that's actually taking off is charity clinics where patients actually can work in the clinic. There's one in New Jersey called Xeropath. And uh, that's worth looking up. And they, if patients can't pay, they can clean, they can do whatever. And they also get donations. There's actually a direct primary care uh, group here in California, St. Luke's, where they have it worked out, where they're actually a charitable organization. So the people who can afford to pay the direct primary care fees pay but they can also donate a fee for a patient who oh, can't wow. pay. So again, this comes back to bringing back humanity. Mm -hmm. And because this is the problem with third party payer, people get the, I gave it the office mentality. And we all like, unless you're kind of a sociopath, but we all like helping others. Right. Makes you feel good. If nothing else, you do it for yourself. And that's even how Mother Teresa said. She says, I do this because it makes me feel good. And there really is something about that. And it helps bring back the humanity. And believe me, there's plenty of doctors who would see people for free. And the only thing we really need insurance for is hospitalization. Because now with all the technology, which I don't want to take away, I mean, I never want to take away an MRI, and it does cost, and um, some of the surgical advancements, you need to have them, but they cost.
and it costs technicians and whatnot to run this equipment. So uh, only the rich would have enough money to pay for hospital out of their pocket. Mm -hmm. So you need major medical, as it used to be called. Mm -hmm. You need that insurance. Beyond that, let's deal with each other one-on-one. And even people who are below the poverty line can be subsumed into these sort of systems. There's some here in L.A. where it's either free or what you can pay. And that's how it used to be. It worked until we got this corporate industrial complex in medicine. And, and that's a great point about compassion and bringing back charity because people, I think there's a lot of good people, compassionate people that push for socialized medicine because they think that's the, that's the compassionate thing to do. But in the end, when you put a, a, a gun to the head of somebody and says, give me your money so I can give it to somebody else, that that's not charity. That's that's not compassion. That's a, that's the use of force. And in the the point that before, I think that when people hear about these discussions, a lot of times they'll think that people want to to uh, leave the poor out in the cold. They want to leave people who aren't able to pay in the cold. But like you talked about, there's charities, and I think personally, churches have really abrogated their responsibility. I think because of their tax exempt status. And not being able to talk about politics, that they've kind of sold out their their position as the, the ones in society to take care of those who can't take care of themselves. I at my church I had a blood pressure clinic and it was and it was very interesting because that's how it started. Just I bring my blood pressure cuffs and and uh, on food bank day the people would come to the food bank and then they come through and most of them I started off with maybe 10 people and then pretty much almost everybody who came to the food bank came through and got their blood pressure. Then there was a guy who had a chronic ulcer on his foot and it was kind of like, oh, he had me look at this little ulcer and we had a list of people that they could go to if they didn't have their own doctor, some clinics that were in the neighborhood. And um, so people give of themselves and patients want it. They appreciate it, and I think that that still goes into all part of the, if you dehumanize the patients and the doctors, then they will accept robotic care, and we need to bring the humanity back on both sides. Yeah, I couldn't say that any better. Definitely, Dr. Singleton. Where where can people follow your work and what you're doing at AAPS? Okay, go to aapsonline.org, and across the top, there's a row that has different categories. We have issues, resources, uh, one for patients, one for doctors, and the one for patients is very good. It You click on look for direct pay practices, and we've got our list, and we have a couple other links where you can go and find places where doctors accept cash or direct primary care practices, and it's a real benefit to the patient. And then not to mention several articles, op-eds, and uh, legislative updates. I do a legislative update every couple of months and of health-related legislation that's going on. And 
again, things get slipped out there that nobody ever hears of. And then the next thing you know, oh, we have to do that. <laughs> and so um, a lot of information on there. And I encourage people to look. And you can join our email list and get our email alerts. Because one of the things that we're really big on is if there's some sort of regulation that's coming out, we have notice of it. And you can always write comments. And we will write sample letters that people can send in for the comments. And we've been cited in the Federal Register. So it's not completely useless. Right. You know, we do our best. And but it allows people to have a voice. And I just think the patients, especially the patients who need opiates or have chronic pain issues, really need to keep abreast of this stuff because more and more they're passing these laws trying to stop the illegal drugs and the problems and the overdoses and whatnot. But sometimes the direction they're taking of punishing the doctor and the patient obviously we feel it's, it's the wrong direction it's definitely so. the wrong direction on that and it's funny that you mentioned leaving comments with the federal registrar you know that comment period before they pass regulations or or codify those um i i also take kratom which is a natural supplement from southeast asia for pain and it's also <clears throat> used for opioid withdrawals as well and the the fda tried to get the dea to schedule one it back in 2016 and so during that comment period, like you talk about, they had 140,000 comments from the public and the DEA reversed their decision to emergency schedule one. So the people still do have the power and that we can still affect change if, uh, if we stay abreast of the information and if we work together. And, and that's, that's the thing. You have to know about these things before you can do anything about it. And that's all part of the deal of keeping the process opaque. and. Um, but that's why we're here. That's why you are here to make this process transparent. And I congratulate you on getting people out there and, and having people comment. And that's what we try to do. So sign up for the email alert. That's free. And um, uh, so you'll learn a lot. And I would, and I would, and I would definitely recommend that everybody, if you're a doctor or a patient, get that Common Sense Medicine booklet as well. They can download that for free or they can buy copies of that. And I'll have a link on chronicallyhuman.co um, oh. with all those links on there. And you're, are you on Twitter as well? I'm on Twitter. I'm M, at M Singleton, MDJD. And uh, so all the pieces will pop up on Twitter. And uh, Fox Business actually picked up my uh, op-ed on Medicare for All yesterday. So, yeah, that, so it, it got some press. And they actually, that, they did the show, and it was talking around some of the comments made in the articles. So, wow, you're, you know. you're making, you're changing the world. It's, you know, that one, that one, you never know when that one comment, that one, that one blog post, that one article, that one interview is going to break through all of the noise out there and start getting people to think about, hey, if other people are having all these problems, maybe I should be concerned about medical freedom as well. Because I think uh, pain patients are kind of the canary in the coal mine with uh, this centralized medicine model based on the criminal justice system with the endless spine, with being treated like, a, like you're uh, basically on parole. 
And I think that's going to seep in more and more to the medical establishment. I agree. Well, where, Dr. Strickland, where, before we let you go, um, is there an organization, is your organization one that would facilitate working uh, doctors and patients together to push for medical freedom? Or do you know of any organization that is out there who is doing that? Are you, you're more fo focused on the doctor side, is that correct? Well, we focus on the patient side too, okay. and, and that's say we we actually have a you know a, a, a column for patients, and we encourage patients to write us, and indeed mm -hmm. patients do write us with some problems they have, and generally we try to find somebody in the area if if it's an issue with finding medical care, whatever. Um, and direct them to that doctor, or if they come up with some issue that they want some advocacy on, that we will help advocate for that um, if it's within our purview. So mm -hmm. these are these things where it never hurts to ask. You can always email, and um, we try to answer all emails and direct people to the right place that can help them out. Fantastic. That's great. Before we let you go here, we're about to wrap up. I really appreciate your time today and all the work that you're doing. What do you think about the prospects for medical freedom in America going forward? Oh, my goodness. Well, actually, I felt really good this morning when I got one of I get so many emails. And one of them was this Washington Post email that said uh, support for Medicare for all is not what the sponsors thought. And apparently there's much less support than there was for the earlier Medicare for All in Congress. Mm -hmm. And one of the reasons there was support before, it wasn't really a law. It was eight pages of mm -hmm. we're going to do this and we're going to do that. And nothing was really spelled out. And this newer one, more things are spelled out. They still don't have a budget. And if, course of course you don't put a budget down there everybody say oh sounds like a good idea so it was very heartening to think that okay this didn't take off like they thought it would like wow you know this is going to be the issue and i think cooler heads are starting to look at the whole health care system and uh we look at it where we don't want it to be a system. We want it to be patients and doctors working together. That's, that's, Dr. Singh, that's a great way to wrap that up because I think what's going on is that we're having these huge centralized systems that treated us, are treating us like statistics. And the more that we can have peer-to-peer, person-to-person conversations and voluntary transactions, I think everybody will be better off. You said it. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you for your time today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. And we will see you next time. Bye-bye.